Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Vinay Gupta, repeat guest backed by popular demand. Vinay, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. How's it going? Good. And, and Vinay, you've recently published a epic medium post that uh, readers should uh, or listeners should should definitely read and, and take a look at. Why don't you talk about uh, some of the main insights that that drove the post or that you're hoping to uh, to hammer out uh, from the post? Sure. So um, in a nutshell, uh, the post takes a bunch of environmental modeling work that I did at Rocky Mountain Institute uh, right after 9-11, kind of 2003-2004, and really looks at how we could use that environmental model to make really major breakthroughs in how much just environmental consumption we have, real like radical reductions in consumption, as long as it increases, uh, paired with increases in quality of life. And this was kind of a big deal for me because I'm not used to seeing any kind of realistic plan which offers both reduced consumption and increased quality of life. Um, so when I figured this out, like, wait a minute, if you did this, you know, using a blockchain, using some of this uh, stuff, you get something that works. It, it was a real shock for me. It was one of these moments where you kind of turn around and like, wait a minute, the world is actually substantially better than I thought it was. You know, there's, there's something to be done here, which is useful. Um, so that was a that was a big deal for me, and the the content of that piece basically kind of breaks the world up into two parts, right? There's a, a thesis about you know how the economy can be modelled, right? Four basic functions: investment, production, consumption, and waste. And two of those phases we've made enormous breakthroughs in in the past you know 200 years right production has been completely revolutionized by mass production uh, it's been mass uh, massively transformed again by process control uh, which turns into quality control investment similar kinds of statistical approaches give us things like portfolio theory and and give us uh, quantitative finance and hft uh, but we haven't done anything equivalent for the uh, consumption and the waste functions in society. So what we've got is basically this kind of super numerical optimized investment and production system hitting a kind of unoptimized analog swamp for consumption, uh, which is why everybody's parents, you know, basements and garages are packed with kind of, you know, two metric tons of junk that they've accumulated over sort of three or four generations of the family. And what we propose to do about that is basically start looking at how to develop things that look almost like ERP platforms that run all the way through the lifespan of manufactured goods so that everybody in that system knows exactly what they're dealing with, what it's worth. And you can build efficient markets to reuse things, but you can also efficiently figure out what they are for end-wife disposal, figure out how to take them apart, figure out what could be salvaged. Now, now help me understand sort of this... Um these few different approaches. So, hmm. so you know, Jeffrey West in his book Scale writes about how you know, economic growth is, is just inherently unsustainable. He says not only do we have to, um, you know, does treadmill have to get faster and faster, but we have to replace the treadmills. And at at some point, it, it'll just get, you know, we, we you can't innovate any any further. You'll you run up all the resources. It'll be sort of exponential, you know, decay on, on the environment. That, that's that's one approach. 
Tyler Cowen and the like respond back to that saying, yeah, but over what period of time? We'll take a few more thousand years of the status quo. Some people think it's much sooner, you know, unclear TBD. And then uh, a recent book, and I think you're more along these lines, but in a much more nuanced way, Andrew McAfee writes this book, More From Less, which basically says, hey, we can have it all. Economic growth is now, increased economic growth also has been leading to decreased resource extraction. And so basically, the only way out is through. The only way out uh, is to innovate our way through this crisis versus you know, conserve our way through this crisis. How do you respond to the, the different approaches and, and what's your solution? So if we're not going to see any economic growth, what that really means is that people that are currently poor stay poor forever. And this is not going to happen, right? Human beings are not going to stop chopping down trees uh, to try and increase their quality of life anytime soon. If you want them to stop chopping down trees, you've got to give them a better way out of poverty than slash and burn agriculture. So, you know, the, the people that are currently on $1, $2, $5 a day of income, they're going to fight like hell for economic growth because for them, economic growth is whether their kids get to wear shoes or not. Like, there's, there's no way that you're going to stop the human impulse towards just you know making sure that your kids don't die in early childhood, and that requires human you know like the human needs to be provided for, which requires economic growth because we're not doing it right now, and you know you can suggest well you know we could have a radically more equal society, and that looks fine on paper, but it turns out that most of the time when you run that software you get death camps, you know it's been tried in a number of countries. And it has this, you know, like a really hardcore, we're going to level everybody and make them all the same kind of economic policy just seems to result in death camps, gulags, mass starvation. You know, the the attempts that have been made to turn communism into an actual working system have overwhelmingly gone really, really badly. Uh, And I often say to people, like, look, you know, communism is much more dangerous than nuclear power. I don't mind a bit of Scandinavian socialism, but, you know, when we start trying to solve the problems of countries like India, Scandinavian model socialism is not going to fix it uh, because you just don't have enough resources for it to work. So that leaves you with radical resource efficiency. You have to absolutely stop over-consuming, which means that globally we have to start bringing our footprint down really rapidly. But you also have to increase quality of life at every step along that path because if you don't, people won't accept the environmental transformation. Uh, And note that I say quality of life rather than consumption or any other term that we might use for that, because I think it is very clear that when we really do the analysis, quality of life can be divorced from a whole bunch of other factors. And as long as quality of life is going up, maybe we don't mind so much, you know, if there are areas where the things that we want are too expensive to buy. Maybe. So for us to solve some, or even address some of these environmental problems, what trade-offs do we have to make, uh, if any? Well, okay, so... Let's let's just rough this out, right? So a huge chunk of the impact is for beef production, uh, and then the rest of the food system kind of falls in behind that. A huge amount of the uh, environmental footprint is transport, and the vast majority of that transport is people that are commuting, you know, seventy-five miles to work every day in a one-person vehicle. Uh, and then you've got uh, heating processes, right? Keeping your buildings hot being the main one of those, or air conditioning. And those three things together are the vast majority of our global environmental footprint, right? It's basically inefficient insulation of houses, single passenger cars that are being driven, you know, 60 miles a day for commutes, you know, the, uh, the enormous energy consumption associated with beef and all the other stuff that goes alongside that, like deforestation in areas where they're being slashed and burn and then grow a cow. So 
the durable goods thing is not a vast chunk of your environmental consumption. Depending on you know what your lifestyle is and who you ask, the number is going to be sort of 10, 15, 20%. But it does have an enormous amount of downstream impact because the factories in China that are producing those goods are emitting carbon on your behalf. So one way or the other, the manufactured goods sector is actually a substantial chunk of the impact that we've got. My suggestion, and this is not in any way, shape, or form new. The new part is that I figured out how we could actually do this. But my suggestion is that there are actually markets for almost everything which is thrown away. And most people, because of inefficiencies in the markets for getting rid of stuff, are in a position where they actually own far more things than they want to own. But the transaction costs for getting rid of the things that they own but that they don't want to own are so high that they never get rid of those things. So unless people have gone fully kind of Marie Kondo or one bag lifestyle or, you know, other kinds of radical minimalist approaches, unless people have made that transformation already, in all probability, they own way more stuff than they want to. And all of that stuff is tied up working capital, but it's also environmental footprint that could be avoided being emitted somewhere else if we could figure out how to get those goods passed on to other people that want them or need them. So so is Andrew McAfee right in the sense that we uh, the only way out is through. We need to innovate our way through this, and we don't actually have to make any trade-offs um, except for the trade-offs inherent in producing more economic growth. I guess. Well, so let's let's take the beef thing for a second, right? So if we just look at beef consumption as it stands, you basically have two choices, right? Either people stop eating beef because there is some kind of beef substitute which is better than beef in some way, and you get a mass conversion. Um, or we take like five centuries to persuade people to stop eating hamburgers, right? There, there's no way that we are going to be able to stop, you know, large-scale beef production unless you have governments that are really seriously just going to take the hamburgers out of people's mouths. It's not happening anytime soon with a kind of stick-based approach. And if there's going to be a carrot-based approach, the only thing you can do is offer somebody a better burger than the burger they're eating. And at that point, it has to be innovation-led. Now, this is not to say that we can do a whole bunch of you know, stupid and ignorant things, right? If you want to drive innovation in the replacement of beef by something that's less environmentally damaging, you might start thinking about taking some of the massive externalized costs of beef and then taxing that stuff so that you say, okay, you know, it's not that we're specifically targeting beef, but we are going to target water consumption in food. You know, because it's you know drying out our aquifers, and at that point we're going to target almonds, beef, and a few other foods which are enormously water intense. Right? You can't actually imagine environmental taxation policies being brought in to bring up the cost of things which are currently being kept artificially cheap at the cost of enormous environmental damage. But for the most part, you know, the only way you're going to solve the beef problem is by innovation in clean meat. Nothing else is remotely practical, and I think that we need to be very clear that. You know, much as we might want governments to be able to mandate that people make radical lifestyle changes and cut their environmental footprint in wild ways, you live in democracies and the voters are not going to take that anytime soon. Maybe in 50 years after the entire world is desertified and we've got tumbleweeds going through New York, maybe by then voters will be willing to vote for austerity. But, you know, like realistically, it's not going to happen on the same life, in the, in the same lifetime as the problems could be solved. So if we want to solve the problems before they're so bad that the voters are willing to finally vote on them, you have to take an innovation-led approach. Like nothing else is going to cut it because the voters are not going to move anytime soon. And that's the end of the story in a democracy. 
Right. So more capitalism, modified capitalism, or what needs to change from today? Well, okay. So the thing that I picked up as a single sort of, you know, the, the, the aha moment for me was when I realized that we had massively modernized investment and production, but we hadn't modernized consumption and waste at all. And by modernized, what I really mean is uh, statistical process control. We gather all the data about what people are actually doing. We look for where the problems are using mathematical approaches. And then we solve the problems by changing the way that thing, the processes work. So, you know, if you look at, for example, I don't know, the, the, the laptop that you're recording this on, everything about that laptop was defined in absolutely minute detail, you know, right the way back through the supply chain to the raw materials. Everything about that was known, it was controlled, it was numerical, it was measured, and it was amazing, right? And then you get to the point of sale, and they hand you the laptop in the store, or Amazon ships it to you, and then after that, it's completely dark. There is no digital record of its existence. It could be passed through you know, 25 hands, or it could stay with you forever. Nobody really collects the data on whether the thing is lost, stolen, broken, found to be obsolete, you know, sold in a secondary market, taken apart for parts. We've got no notion of what becomes of the object. So what that means is that we're not doing any numerical analysis and then statistical optimization of the consumption processes of society. No wonder they're really inefficient. We haven't started measuring and improving. And I mean, this, this really did hit me like a two by four. You know, it was just this sudden blazing moment of insight. But wait a minute. If you massively optimize investment and production, but you don't do anything for consumption and waste, of course you're going to get massive problems. When you take a hyper-optimized digital system and you plug it directly into an analog swamp, of course you're going to get massive problems. So what that did was it pulled together for me all of the stuff about Internet of Things, all of the stuff about platforms like Uber, uh, all of the stuff about platforms like eBay, a lot of the stuff about targeted advertising. And what I began to realize is that these things were the initial attempts to do statistical modeling of consumer behavior in a way that allowed us to build more efficient consumption systems. Imagine if we wound up with a breakthrough in consumption that was the same kind of tenfold or hundredfold increase in efficiency that we got on production over the past few decades. You see what I'm saying? Like, we just haven't applied the techniques of optimization in any kind of systematic, disciplined way to consumption. So unsurprisingly, the consumption system is a wildly inefficient mess. And I think we could fix that, you know, it, really just by doing the same things that we did in industrial production. And, and paint a picture of what it would look like for it to be fixed. What, what, would, what would be different? Or what, well, so, what, what could it look like? well, so take our laptop story, right? I mean, a laptop is a really good thing because it can self-report its condition, right? And if you're providing some kind of warranty service, you could probably persuade people to tell you when the thing changes ownership, or it would be part of the anti-theft features that are built into the laptop in the same way that you get with some Apple devices. So if everybody that wants to buy a laptop or is involved in the manufacture and sale of the laptop, or is a secondary buyer of the laptop or is a repairer of the laptop, or wherever it happens to be, if all those people are contributing information to the same shared database, by the time we've put 25,000 of these laptops into the marketplace, we could begin to see systematically, wait a minute, you know, 18 months after these things were bought, the hinges are breaking, right? So that causes the value of that particular laptop brand to go down because nobody wants to buy a laptop with the hinges break, but it equally well causes the value of the laptops which have excellent long service lives to go up. 
and that also increases their value in secondary markets. So what we begin to do is we begin to create an incentive to make things that last a long time because we've got excellent transparency about how long things last. And that means that consumers can take a look at the data sets or somebody looks at the data sets and reports to consumers and says, right, these goods last this long. These goods last about half that long. When you come to sell this thing on eBay, you're going to get $300 more for the one that lasts a long time than for the one that falls to pieces. Right? This thing is impossible to repair. The vast majority of these devices, what happens is the lithium-ion battery craps out after 700 charges, and then the device is useless because it costs you $130 to take it to pieces and fix the battery. This thing turns into landfill. Don't buy it. And I think just having the transparency about the fate of goods is enough for consumers to be into optimized behavior. And that information is there All of us know what happened to the things that we bought, but we're not pulling that information together in a way that allows us to actually make better consumer decisions. So this is a a need for a kind of new form of big data, which is that we get devices to report back on their well-being, and we make sure that those reports are in a place where you can pull them together to do statistical analysis and optimization. And that's just the beginning of these kinds of processes. But, you know, just that one thing where we would have you know, long-term reporting on the welfare of goods over time. Just that one thing is enough to completely change how goods are manufactured. Do you think enough consumers care, even if they had the information, would they do something different? So I think that consumers care very much in secondary markets. So if you are relatively poor and you're looking for a computer on eBay, um, you're going to buy the computer on eBay that has the best probability of lasting a really long time. And you can see this, like ThinkPads. You know, ThinkPads are well known for being pretty much indestructible. And you can see ThinkPads that are 7, 8, 9, 10 years old that are still commanding higher prices than brand new machines uh, that are being produced by other brands today. Right? And that's happening because people trust the old I- uh, IBM and now Lenovo hardware way more than they trust the new machine that's made by some kind of off-brand. Uh, and if you compare that to the prices commanded by old off-brand computers, these things are worth nothing at all. So you already have a kind of informal sense of like these machines last really well, but because we don't have this kind of long-term tracking, it's very hard to demonstrate for sure. And you see this kind of thing in cars as well, right? You know, people have a sense that some car brands tend to be reliable in the long run and other car brands don't. And that changes how much you could get for these things secondhand. But there's no really solid source of data to back up those claims. When you, when you wrote that we get what we measure and we measure the wrong things. Is that what you're referring to or, or what you're referring to there? So this is all the way through the process, right? I mean, if we just take the longevity of goods, we're only seeing one half of this story. So let's take another part of this story, right? I, maybe two years ago, kind of decided I was going to upgrade some of the equipment in my kitchen. And I bought three kitchen gadgets. I bought an air fryer. Uh, I bought a sous vide machine. Uh, and I bought an electric pressure cooker. All three of those devices were absolutely fantastic. Like, so good, it's hard to imagine how they could possibly be improved levels of performance. And, you know, I think the most expensive of them was probably $100, $120. I was looking back on that thinking like, okay, you know, 20 years ago, if you bought a kitchen gadget, nine times out of 10, the thing would turn out to be junk. Why is this happening? And I realized that all of these devices, when I bought them, I bought them from Amazon, and they all had well over a thousand four and a half five star reviews. These things were incredibly well reviewed by huge numbers of people, 
And what's happened is that we've just got a much higher quality product in the kind of kitchen gadget marketplace because so much of that stuff is being bought on Amazon rather than just buying something in a store. And when these things don't work, people really slate them in the reviews. And when they do work, they're incredibly effusive with the praise. So what's happened is that we've created a little bit more transparency in the world of kitchen gadgets. And what nobody realizes, how much landfill that has prevented. Because if you buy the thing and it's trash and it breaks, you throw it away and immediately it's landfill and all of the environmental consumption that went into manufacturing it is now immediately wasted. Whereas if you buy it and it's great and you keep it, fantastic. Right, that, that's what we want. We want durable goods. Now, then we get to the second thing, which is that one of those devices is in use three or four times a, a week. Another one of those devices is in use maybe once every two weeks. And the third one of those devices is just gathering dust on a shelf. Right? And that is also critical because the one that's gathering dust on a shelf, that's sunk capital, right? I should actually sell that or give it to somebody, but the transaction costs are too high. And I have that kind of hankering feeling of like, oh, but I might need it again. And at that point, I hang on to it and it becomes clutter, right? And I I don't know how your life works, but for many, many people, their life is a constant struggle against clutter because Amazon will bring you something in, you know, 60 minutes guaranteed, but nobody will come and take it away again afterwards. You know, your only option for getting rid of something is give it to a friend, in which case it's lost uh, cost, sell it on eBay for 50% or 30% of what you paid for it because nobody trusts that the things which are listed on eBay are real so all the prices are discounted, uh, or you know, take it to something like a thrift store, right? or you could landfill it. But none of these options have anything like the kind of nuance and sophistication of the process that sold you the goods in the first place they're all basically parts of this kind of analog swamp, right? You bought the thing from a digital process and it was all super efficient and slick. When the time comes to get rid of it, you're suddenly back into these messy manual processes. And this is why we've got this enormous junk problem because acquisition has been super streamlined, but uh, getting rid of things again is completely unoptimized. You you wrote, we have a duty to square the circle, to deliver sustainable abundance to all humanity and to leave nature alone to its own devices for the most part. Can you unpack you know, where we should leave nature alone, where we aren't today, and what that would look like? So imagine that we take this kind of whole life cycle stuff seriously, right? Investment, production, consumption, and waste are all equally optimized. And we do that by essentially building software which looks something like enterprise resource planning, but it lasts for the entire life cycle of the goods. So think of something which starts at one end and looks like Kickstarter and runs right the way through to you know manuals for people that are doing end-of-life disposal of things that show them how to take it to pieces so the steel comes into one pile and the electronics go into another. Right? That sort of system makes it begin to look economically feasible to have vastly higher reuse and recycling rates. Right? If you make goods properly, you know, there's no reason that an electrical appliance like a pressure cooker shouldn't work for 50 years. Eventually, something will burn out, and it's probably a small component to replace. Uh, in very few cases will the actual superstructure of the body become a complete loss. At that point, that thing's environmental consumption is amortized over every single meal that it cooks for the whole service life of the object. If we begin to think this way about everything in the manufactured universe, 
And we get to be really good at taking things to pieces at the end of that because we've got documentation of what they are and we try and get them into all the secondary markets that we can, including for components. And then we only landfill them when there's really no other choice. What will happen is that our ability to produce human welfare per unit of environmental impact will go through the roof. And I think that ratio of like human welfare per unit of material, uh, natural capital consumed that could go up by a factor of 10 or 100 without any real screwing around at all. Because so much of our environmental impact is from systems that are completely unoptimized because we haven't gone through the statistical process control thinking on those processes. We don't have any data. We can't figure out where to optimize. As a result, the systems are just analog swamps. On the other hand, if we can get this kind of radical drop in consumption, and I think clean meat is super key to this, then nature left its own devices just puts all of its resources into making more nature. Right? There are some instances where you want human intervention when you start doing things like uh, reforesting. Reforesting is a really slow process without human help. But short of the areas where you're doing this kind of heavy restorative work, for the most part, if you just leave jungle alone, Jungle will do a really good job of capturing carbon and continuing to be jungle. It's really good at that. It's a massively optimized system. Um, and that's true for a lot of ecosystems around the world. If we just leave these things alone, they'll do a better job of soaking up our carbon than any potential interaction with nature. So I think that in the long run, what I'd like to see is our industrial ecology basically become the snake that eats its tail where we've taken all the stuff out of the ground that we're going to take out of the ground, and for the most part, we're just reusing and reusing and recycling and recycling. And then the natural world, we kind of allow to close its loops, and we kind of, over time, separate the technosphere from the biosphere. And I don't mean this in the kind of domed cities, let's all go live on spaceships kind of a sense, but, you know, like, there's no reason that most of the things in our lives should have been taken for raw materials that were taken out of the ground to make that specific object. You know, if you need a plastic cap, you know, we've got an enormous amount of plastic. And if we just made better use of the plastics, so we use things like polypropylene, which can be melted down or reused and melted down or reused and melted down or reused indefinitely, just like glass can, you know, you get out of this model that you're going to turn oil into a cup that's going to be used once and pitched. And I think, really think that we could make damn near everything that's made out of plastic out of polypropylene and wind up with a polypropylene economy, an aluminium economy, a steel economy, and a glass economy, which have close to 100% recycling rates. And to get there, we just have to get serious about measuring what is happening so we can see how much the inefficiencies in these systems are costing us. Are you familiar at all with Charles Eisenstein's work, uh, Sacred Economics? A little bit, a little bit. One of his uh, proposals is basically negative interest rates to encourage people to spend less. What are your thoughts on that? As a, I think that's like one of his biggest proposals. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I generally hate economic tinkering. You know, I'm an engineer, and okay, I, you know, you can do anything you like with incentives, but it doesn't matter what you do with incentives. When the problem actually gets solved, it's going to get solved by an engineer. Somebody is going to sit down and design a solution and then implement it. So it might be that you could encourage people to spend less money on goods by taxing them in this way or the next and the rest of that stuff. But if you don't fix the fundamental engineering, what will happen is there'll be a radical drop in quality of life in the process. And if we're going to collapse people's qualities of lives in the name of environmental welfare, they're going to vote for somebody else. 
And then they're going to go right back to having, you know, 18-wheeler trucks being driven backwards and forwards for commuting. You know, there, there's just no way that we can coerce people because if you're going to go to all this work to create a democratic society, you can't just coerce people when you've decided that you've had enough of their behavior, right? <laughs> you know, we have to start thinking about how the engineers can actually offer people something better than what they've got and in the process give them a better life. And I mean, I could, let, me, let me give you an example of this, right? So, you know, IKEA is an enormously wasteful machine, right? It, it takes raw materials. Some of them are recycled, most of them aren't. It turns them into furniture. The furniture will survive being moved once or twice, but really relatively rapidly, it becomes impossible to move it another time without it falling to pieces, and it becomes junk. And you know, the stuff is so ubiquitous that it has practically no resale value because nobody expects old IKEA stuff to last. And compare this with a technology called Gridbeam, which has been bouncing around for 30, 40 years, and it's essentially a Lego kit for producing furniture that looks like IKEA. You know, same thing, goes together with an Allen key. It's a bunch of wooden components which are completely standardized like Legos are, and just about anybody can screw together bookcases, tables, couches, and all the rest of this sort of stuff. And it has a bit of a kind of rough-looking, rustic chic to it. It looks a little engineering, but not in ways that couldn't be fixed if a decent industrial designer took a look at it and said, I'm going to make this look beautiful now. If we use the Gridbeam model rather than an IKEA model, then IKEA could sell Gridbeam. IKEA could rent Gridbeam, or it could sell it to you and then buy it back from you at end of life. Um, the components are simple enough that you could use something like AI to make an assessment about whether the component is damaged or not. Just run them through a machine vision system on a conveyor belt when you take the stuff back in. Uh, and then you just wind up with a library of modular components, which all of the ultra-low-value scrap furniture is made from. And eventually the pieces of 2 by 2 will wear out after you know, they've been used for 50 years. Maybe the things will get you know splintered or cracked or you know, whatever it happens to be. But you don't wind up in a position where, you know, the entire assemblage is just used for a while and then destined for landfill, right? You can actually get real solutions to these kinds of processes. It just requires there to be a willingness to use the same kind of engineering approaches that were used to optimize the manufacture of the furniture, you know, to optimize the production of the furniture in the consumption phase. Right? If we if we if we offer people those kind of solutions, I think they'll take them. And we've seen this in the past, right? I mean, modularity and reusability was the key key to the success of the IBM PC. The entire PC market was based on the idea that you could pull off all your expensive graphics cards and sound cards and all the rest of these expensive components, right? Sell the motherboard, buy a new one which was better, drop it in, maybe get a better processor. You know, if you didn't need to upgrade the entire motherboard, and that modularity was what protected people's investment when they bought a PC, versus the Apple approach, where there just wasn't any real way of expanding those machines, and there certainly wasn't the same kind of uh, expectation that your capital would be protected. And so during that period, you know, the PC market was huge and incredibly innovative, and the Apple market was a tenth of the size and really moved very slowly. Uh, it wasn't until the PC makers really dropped the ball on design issues, kind of 2003, 4, 5, that the lead went back to Apple. So I think that there's a, you know, there are plenty of situations that we've been in, in the past where these kind of modular economies were deployed. And now I think we're in a position where 
we've got the capability to design and deliver these kinds of services, to do the documentation, to close the loops, and to produce something which is a radically higher quality of life with much lower consumption because the things are built to last. And we actually hate junk. You know, nobody enjoys the trash treadmill. Every time you take some expensive object and you throw it in the trash because it's fallen to pieces or it's just too difficult to find another buyer for it, we all feel the pain because we're throwing away money and we know that we're also wasting a bunch of the Earth's resources in the process. And like, that's one of the biggest pain points in our entire society. And eBay should not be the only company in the world that's trying to work on that pain point. Zooming out for a sec, is, is there a world in which, you know, some people call this era the Anthropocene, um, you know, is there, is there a world in which, you know, uh, in the last hundred years, you know, we didn't escalate some of these uh, environmental problems as, as bad as we, or do you think it was sort of inevitable that we would grow in this way, sort of, you know, hyper consumerism? So there are, I mean, there are a bunch of historical turning points that could have gone in a different direction. The biggest of those is probably Buckminster Fuller. You know, Buckminster Fuller was talking about almost exactly the same stuff that I'm talking about now, really from what, the 1930s, I think he became active, maybe the 1920s. And, you know, he lobbied for years and years and years and years and years about doing more than with less, about radical resource efficiency, about redesigning artifacts like houses and cars to actually be efficient engineering solutions rather than simply copy the designs which had gone before. And, you know, if Fuller had had a little bit more commercial success, I think you could have seen a situation in which, for example, trailer housing wasn't trailer housing, but it was Buckminster Fuller-style Dymaxian homes. And they would be very well insulated. They'd be economically efficient. They'd be made of componentized modular parts. When people were done with a trailer, you could just pull out all the bolts and then flat pack it on a truck, take it somewhere else, reassemble it. You know, they wouldn't be in a position where they would just get damp and fall to pieces. They'd actually be good. And I think that it's, you know, a matter of probably two or three small historical accidents that we wound up on the trajectory that we're on rather than on that trajectory. I don't think it would have taken much. Uh, You know, a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill, a little bit of judgment, it probably would have been fine. And then once you've got a section of the economy that works that way, you know, you get to see what an efficient engineering solution looks like and then other things begin to get pulled towards that norm. And and nowhere is it nothing comes to mind, but are there any accidents or or historical other historical turning points that come to mind that if, you know, this happened differently... Well, there's, a, I mean, there's one critical thing, which is the car crash involving the Dymaxion car. So Fuller designed a three-wheeler car with an almost perfectly aerodynamic shell that seated something like eight or 11 people. So think of something that looked like a kind of teardrop-shaped, totally smooth, kind of bubble-looking minibus. And uh, it had a terrible engineering mishap and then crashed in a way that kind of cast doubt on Buckminster Fuller's reputation as an engineer. And to this day, it's not really clear whether that was deliberate sabotage from some interested party or whether it was genuinely just, you know, a part wore out or they had some kind of engineering incident. You know, there's a lot of kind of nebulous confusion around the exact, you know, cause and effect of that problem. But I think that is one of the turning points where people looked at this whole new aesthetic approach and kind of backed away from it and went back to their kind of three tons of steel on four wheels. I mean, that's probably the critical point. We could also take a look at the rise of marketing after World War II as a way of trying to create demand for goods. You know, the American factories were producing so much they just couldn't get people to buy enough stuff. And they couldn't open up international markets fast enough to get rid of it. 
So there was this whole attempt to psychologically re-engineer people to consume more and to turn consumption into a hobby kind of in and of itself. That's another huge historical turning point. But I mean, for the most part, we live in a culture that is, you know, it's really the first culture on earth which has had more stuff than it knew what to do with. So it's not that surprising to be given that it is so new to us that we've got an enormous amount of confusion about how to respond to the superabundant wealth that we find ourselves embedded in and surrounded by. You know, by previous historical norms, even our poor people are rich people. They don't necessarily feel rich because they see lots of other people even richer. Yes. Um, and I mean, some of this is a measurement problem. I mean, when I was working on sustainable development and humanitarian crisis, you know, this kind of 12 years from the adventure of the Hexer until I joined the Ethereum team uh, and, you know, ran the launch processes there. Um, you know, in that 12-year window, I was almost entirely pointed at how do we handle hundreds of millions of climate refugees and keep people alive. And what I realized was that the only real measures of poverty that I trust are maternal mortality, so how many women die in childbirth, infant mortality, which is how many kids die before the age of five, um, and average lifespan. And if you've got good numbers for maternal mortality, infant mortality, and average lifespan, in all probability, the people will perceive themselves to be doing okay. Right? They might be poor, but they're stable, they're well taken care of, they're eating okay, they've got reasonable quality of medical services, their kids are generally speaking all right. You're in a situation where things are reasonably well balanced. America, just you know, you can those metrics, has really, really bad numbers for infant mortality. It's uh, for some demographics has terrible numbers for maternal mortality, and life span uh, life span is going down for some demographics inside of American society. Like middle-class white people, their life expectancy is dropping really pretty fast right now. And that's a really good proxy for the amount of pain that people feel themselves to be in. You know, if any one of those numbers is going in the wrong direction, people really are feeling the pain. How do we address that? <laughs> or what, what do you think is the most effective leverage? On, on Is it narrative problem? Is it actual resource problem? Is it a, in terms of, if we wanted to lessen the pain, what do you think would be the highest leverage thing we could do? Well, I mean, let me ask you a question here. Have you ever been like really poor for a year or two? Like, have you had a period where you were just disconnected from the financial machine? Uh, I've not really poor. Uh, you know, I've been a struggling, uh, you know, entrepreneur uh, in you know in Detroit, but not um, you know, not questioning where my next meal was or, or something like that. But yeah, I mean, that's that's probably close enough to the bottom that you know you you've felt what people mean when they say precarity. Right, yep. not knowing whether or not you know. So, you know that precarity, paycheck, yeah, 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 paycheck, right? Like, uh, you know, are, is rent going to be okay next month, or is it going to go on my credit card again? And we're getting close to the limit. But, you know, yeah, yeah. like the precarity thing, you can actually have quite a lot of money come again, and still be in a position where if a single thing goes wrong, you're living back with your parents, right? At best. Yep. So I think that we've done a lot of work on attacking poverty by just trying to make the income numbers go up. But we've done very little work on attacking precarity. And actually, precarity is the worst part of poverty and is largely independent from your level of income. Right. And and how can we adjust that? Well, here we go back to statistical process control, right? So if we take everybody that's currently receiving benefits from the UK government, right? This is the folks that are disabled, it's the folks that are unemployed, it's the folks that are on pensions, 
people keep getting kicked off their unemployment benefits. They keep getting kicked off their disability benefits because the governments come in and they, you know, make them go through testing regimes or the benefits stop after six months or whatever it happens to be. And then they lose track of those people in their welfare after that point. And those systems where they're taking folks that are on benefits and they're basically verifying whether or not they are still ill enough that they require support from the government, those systems are notoriously corrupt because the people that are making the assessment have a quota for the number of people that they're supposed to kick off the lists. So you kick these folks off the lists, they go through an appeal process, they make their way back on. All of that is precarity, right? Um, same thing for workers that are on things like zero-hour contracts, folks that run minimum wage but they have no job stability. All of these systems are just pumping huge amounts of stress and fear into the people that are in the precarious position. And I think that we could go a long way with a really concerted attack on precarity. Like, we're going to figure out how to take these shocks out of these systems, or we're going to ensure the shocks, Right. If you get kicked off the dole and you have to go through an appeal process, why doesn't somebody in a position where for a pound a week, you know, a dollar a week, they'll sell you an insurance contract that says that if the government stops your benefits and then you go through an appeal process, you get them back again, we'll give you a lump sum payment that will cover the period that you're without benefits. You know, there are lots and lots and lots of systems that we could put in place using concepts like insurance, using statistic process control that would hugely reduce the actual perceived fragility of life when we are poor without actually requiring more than a couple of percent more money to be in the total system, right? You know, for a given standard of living, reducing the precarity on that standard of living, I think, is relatively cheap compared to increasing the standard of living to the next kind of perceived hedonic step. I want to go back to Buckminster Fuller for a second, because I know you're... you're student uh, and, and have, you know, are very deep on it. And for, for listeners who aren't aware, what else do you think is important to know about him in terms of the biggest insights he had or contributions he had or, or, or what do you wish people better understood or appreciated about him? Oh, man. Um, well, where to begin? St. Buckminster Fuller. So, I mean, the, the basic life story um, is that Buckminster Fuller was an American engineer who had some kind of profound transformative spiritual experience early in his life and then spent the rest of his life, roughly I don't know, 50 years of actual activity, basically attempting to figure out how much he could improve human life with the skills of a single engineer. And he had a, an approach that was very similar in sort of basic, I guess, integrity to Gandhi. You know, Fuller really said, well, you know, we should take all these wonderful engineering approaches that we've got and we should apply them to direct creation of human welfare. Here is a design for a house. Here is a design for a car. Here is a design for a shower. Here is a design for a toilet. Here is how you build large buildings. And he just went through system after system, category after category, looking at things, figuring out why they were done the way they were done, figuring out how you would do them if you were starting today rather than starting 800 years ago. And then he would prototype them, try and sell them. And sometimes they sold really well and sometimes they didn't. But his core insight was that the ways that we've done things are generally speaking really dumb. Do you know this kind of famous story that sort of suggests that the space shuttle was designed the way it was designed because of a set of engineering constraints that went all the way back to Roman chariots? 
Now, my understanding is it's a myth, right? But the basic story is the chariots had axles that were the width of two horses, and then that becomes the standard gauge for the machinery that's used for axles for everything, which sets how wide the railway axles can be, and the width of the railway tracks set how wide the space shuttle components can be when they move them around the country. It turns out not actually true, but that, that was the kind of thinking. So if we were to start from scratch right now and try and design the equipment required for a human being to live well in the world that we're now in, almost nothing that we do would be done the way that it's currently done. Like I can't, I can't think of a single process that actually, if you were starting from scratch, you would design it the way that we're currently designing it. Like, you know, if you invented the process of eating animals today, nobody in a million years would let you do it. Like if the entire population was vegetarian and somebody discovered that it was possible to eat animals, the amount of horror that would be felt, like you can't do that. You're killing that thing to eat it. Are you crazy? You'd lock people up, right? But because it's the way that it's always been done, we're perfectly okay with doing it. And, you know, 50 years after we get this whole clean meat thing sorted out and you've got, you know, really good quality animal-like protein that's being made without any animals involved, in all probability it will become illegal to eat animals. Because why would you do that? Only a crazy person would do that. You, you sort of see what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's a need to actually begin to update our society to keep pace with our technology. Right. And Buckmaster Fuller was, or, and the relation to him is, well, I mean, this was Bucky's pitch, was that the engineers should figure out how to build a society that worked for everybody, and we should largely ignore the politicians because politics is just the art of dividing up scarcity. So the job of a politician is to figure out who is going to go without having their basic needs met and to persuade everybody else that that's the right person to go without having their basic needs met. Four was like, look, if everybody has everything they need, the actual requirement for politics drops to being practically zero. Right. And so if he was alive today, you know, what would he be saying? Well, I mean, I mean, we, we live in the world that Buckminster Fuller wanted us to avoid. You know, I mean, the, the questions that Fuller would be asking, I mean, my entire line of thinking on this is taken from Fuller. They're the same questions that I'm asking, right? Why are we making all of this stuff that people use for a while and then throwing it away, right? Either we made the wrong thing, which is why they're throwing it away, or we sold it to the wrong person, which is why they're throwing it away. Firstly, if they have it and it wasn't intended for landfill, they should give it to somebody else or sell it to somebody else. Do you see what I mean about this as, a, as just a stark re-examination of what we're doing from a kind of you know, God's eye view? Like, why do we make all this stuff and then just throw it into the trash? Does that make any sense at all? Does it make any sense at all? Surely the consumers are wasting you know, 20, 30, 40% of their income on things that they buy that turn out to be crap and then they throw them away. Well, that seems kind of inefficient. That's like massive. Whoa. Do you see what I mean? Like there's this kind of moment of shock where you're just like, wait, this is a completely unoptimized system. I guess the question I have is, is the solution to, you know, have better sort of secondary, you know, you know, people buy stuff they're getting, they don't need and then you just make better use of it on the back end, Or is it that you change you know incentives on consumerism on on the front end but it's pretty hard in a world of advertising see this this is where i think the key is statistical process control right so let's talk about kind of weird communities where people are working on these problems in really unexpected ways right so 
I, I have two favorite communities of people that are massively nerdy about physical materials, right? And there are lots of other communities, like bicycle people are that way, and you know some kinds of chefs are that way, and there are all kinds of communities where people are super nerdy about their physical stuff, uh, photographers. But the two that I keep an eye on are the one-bag travelers and the ultralight hiking community, right? So the one-baggers are people that are trying to get their entire material base down to a single carry-on luggage item, right? So their total owned material goods is 10 kilograms of matter. And there are, I don't know, tens or hundreds of thousands of these people. There's a huge Reddit forum. And if you're trying to get your total material base down to enough that you can just fly anywhere in the world, so on one hand, you're very dependent on things like Airbnb or hotels uh, on the other end. So when you arrive, you're dependent on the local infrastructure. You're not roughing it with a 10-kilogram bag, right? You need a furnished apartment. You don't own a couch, and you're never going to own a couch. On the other hand, every single thing in that 10 kilograms is the best thing that you could possibly buy for the weight because that's all you own, so the stuff is going to be really nice because you all of the money that people normally spend on their entire lifestyle, these people are putting into a single bag. So Everything is made of merino wool or high-tech fabrics. They have crazy waterproof jackets that are made of materials like Dyneema. You know, these folks are by no means hair shirt. What they are is this kind of super luxury approach to life, which is I'm only going to own 10 kilograms of stuff, but every single item in that 10 kilogram list will be artisanal and perfect. I will have the titanium toothbrush with the reusable heads you know, uh, the replaceable heads. I will have, you know, exactly one belt, but that belt is going to be fantastic. And that approach is a completely different way of relating to consumerism because they've imposed an artificial constraint on them, not for moral reasons, but so that they can travel the world without having to screw around in airports all the time and wait for their stuff and half the time it doesn't arrive. They've traded the size of the material footprint for a kind of nomadism and they're religious about this stuff. And to me, that kind of cultural innovation is, you know, they're taking it to an extreme, but that's the kind of thing that could back percolate through the rest of society really, really quickly. Not for everybody, but for enough people that it changes our total environmental performance quite a bit. I, I, I want to talk a bit about Materium here, because, you know, I mean, with all this stuff, like the company that I'm building is a long way from the large-scale environmental goal, right? You know, when we started Materium, we had a very ambitious plan, which was we were going to become like the Supreme Court of the Internet. Bitcoin is the Internet's central bank. Materium is the Supreme Court of the Internet. We'll provide all the legal and regulatory machinery for enabling you to put Bitcoin and similar currencies like Ethereum into real trade. Super ambitious, 10 years early. We stalled out very hard last year, and we're just like, oh my God, we're too early. Ever told you um, Gupta's Law of Innovation? Yeah, tell me. Right, good for all of innovation. If you're wrong, you can learn, but if you're too early, you're screwed. I like it. Right? So we fell into that trap, and then we kind of dialed back to okay, what can we do in the market that we're currently in? And you know, we spent the majority of this year beavering away on this idea of collectibles. Right, we were going to figure out how to do this stuff for art. We were going to figure it out for collectibles. There was some vague notion that we could get down the line. We could get to things like real estate using the same kind of legal mechanisms. But at the end of the day, we were focused on art and collectibles because the blockchain is a really good place for permanent information. And 
art and collectibles, you want permanent information bound to the objects, right? We've got this deal with William Shatner where we're going to be putting up a whole tranche of Star Trek merchandise onto the Ethereum main chain later this year. You know, Shatner loves it to bits, collectors love it to bits, it looks like a really good idea. I was kind of, you know, tracking down that track relatively contentedly. Like, you know, I knew that if we could get physical things onto the blockchain, it was going to be a big deal. You know, I was working towards some kind of long-term environmental goals, but it didn't become kind of slap in the face explicitly like here and now we can do something about this until I saw the change in the way that people were reacting to Greta Thunberg. I don't know if you've watched much of her stuff, but I mean, she's really laying it down with a baseball bat. Did you see the talk that she did at the UN? Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask about her. Basically, how how, how should we be perceiving all the hullabaloo that's going on around her? Where is the conversation going right? Where is it not going right? So I, I saw that talk, and I'm like, okay, you know, we're not trying hard enough here, right? Like, I'm supposed to be an environmentalist. You know, all this collectible stuff is fantastic. It looks like a way I can make a company that will work. That's great. Where's the meat? So that was when I sat down and really began to look. Uh, you know, what are we doing here? Okay, we've got this idea of collecting all the information about the product in the form of provenance and authenticity. Why don't we extend that along, right? You know, all this provenance and authenticity stuff is basically about production. Some of the provenance is then about who are the previous consumers. Oh, wait a minute. You know, this is kind of like ERP, but it's ERP that's all the way along the product life cycle. Oh, and then there was that moment where there was, you know, reality goes a little fuzzy as two things kind of connect to each other. And that was when I realized that we had optimized investment and production, but not consumption and waste management. And, you know, once you have that insight, you know, once you have the insight, there's kind of no going back, right? To me, that felt like the same kind of moment as when I invented the Hexier. I just kind of watched my next 20 years, like rewrite themselves. Like, oh, oh, I'm going to be doing a lot of this. And, you know, the blockchain is, is lost as it currently stands, right? The Bitcoin vision of, you know, the entire world's currencies are going to be destabilized by people voluntarily defecting to free market money. That's really so not happening. Uh, All the discussion about key escrow has begun to come back up again from uh, the feds. You know, somebody will eventually figure out the key escrow equals no Bitcoin, no Ether, none of that. So I feel like the whole blockchain thing has this vision of being a platform that allows everybody who's involved in the business process to share a data set that is reliable and that is fraud evident. It's not necessarily fraud proof, but it's fraud evident. And I feel like if we don't find a way of rescuing that vision from the idea of currency, we're going to wind up losing some of the most exciting new technology that we've got in software because the political vision that was initially welded to that technology turns out to be infeasible. So there's a there's a whole body of thought where I kind of see this as being like the fusion of cyberpunk and environmentalism. You know, it's not exactly solarpunk. I think I have a slightly different emphasis. But the, you know, I kind of feel like we need a new vision for the blockchain space, which ought to be like, look, this is the operating system for managing the world's material assets, right? It's exactly the right technology for carbon tracking. It's exactly the right technology for durable goods. It's exactly the right technology for, you know, large-scale statistical monitoring of society to figure out what the hell is causing so much bloody landfill and where all the oil is going. Because it's got this right right competence, which is that it allows for many, 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 many actors to be working on the same data set simultaneously. 
Well, one question I would, I would just have is some people believe that the, it's this desire to quantify everything that actually causes our problems, that the world is indeterminate and we, you know, everything is sort of, you know, too complex. It's not complicated, it's complex. And we can't really quantify the, the sort of interconnectedness that we all face and the desire to control this via market mechanisms or any quantification is what is the source of our problems, actually. Do you think that's incorrect? Or oh, no, I think that's absolutely correct. If we weren't quantifying things, we'd still be living in, you know, thatched huts, you know, farming with horses. And sure enough, our environmental impact, our environmental impact will be negligible because there'd only be 500 million of us, right? I mean, you know, the quantification is what gave us industrial production. It's what gave us quality control. It's what allowed our population to increase to the level that it has. And if we stop measuring things, it would fall right back again real quick. You know, like, if you like human beings, human beings are being kept alive by quantification, right? It's, it's, the, it's right. the efficiency of the industrial production process. I mean, you know, when I was doing planning for climate refugees, like, okay, hundreds of millions of people. We have to do life support for hundreds of millions of people for absolute bottom dollar. How are we going to do this? You know, I, this was a 30-year project. Started in 2002, didn't expect to have fielded global capability until, you know, the sort of 2030s. A lot of the underlying philosophical work on Materium was me trying to imagine how we would do the software to manage, you know, 10 million, 20 million person refugee cities where you've got enormously scarce access to material resources and you need a software operating system so that if you need a 10 millimeter wrench, you can get one delivered to you because there's only, you know, 4,000 wrenches for 5 million people. You need the software to know where those wrenches are. You need to never lose one. You need to be able to get hold of it. That was under the surface of like, if I'm, if we're going to take care of all of the people that are going to lose their farmland or whose cities are going to get washed out here, we have to be so material efficient, there's no way of getting there other than the software. You know, this is the like the fourth or fifth big intellectual challenge on that trajectory. You know, first the hexier for housing, then simple critical infrastructure maps for designing the infrastructure systems, and then all the stuff about special economic zones in terms of, you know, you basically can't have that many refugees in a rural setting. You need to urbanize them super quick. So we take advantage of the existing urbanization trend and we produce essentially new Singapores or new Hong Kongs as a way of soaking up the refugee populations that are being displaced. And then inside of those cities, you need this kind of ultra high tech stuff management, material management operating system so that all the raw materials inside of those societies are priced so that when you need access to them, you could get access to them because under those conditions of material poverty, you can't afford to have illiquid markets for material goods. So, you know, that, that long-term thrust, I, I just don't see how we could possibly expect to take care of 9 billion people in rapidly changing conditions if we don't start quantifying all the stuff that we failed to quantify. What's killing us is the things that we didn't measure, not the things that we did. Totally. I'm curious more how you think about the the role of, of governments uh, and governance here and, and what, what more would you like to see? What less would you like to see? What, what is the right way of thinking about their, their role here? On this, um, let, let's talk a little bit about economic geography and political economy. So think, think of our economy as having basically kind of three phases, right? 
There's a feudal phase, which is largely about farming. There's a mercantile phase, which is largely about international shipping, uh, exploration, this kind of stuff. And then there's an industrial phase, which is largely about massive industrial production. So in the feudal agricultural phase, agricultural land plus peasants equals wealth, and then governments basically are a protection racket where they will stop your peasants getting killed in exchange for taking a chunk of their money. And when they did things like the census in Iceland in 1750 or something, 99% of the population listed their occupation as farmer. You know, you had about 100 people in the fields for every two, three, four people that were doing something other than being in a field, like being a priest or being a blacksmith or whatever it was. So the thing that we call the state goes back to the agrarian feudal condition of society, and governments are therefore completely psychologically bonded to the form of land. The nation state is welded to the idea of physical geography. Phase one. Phase two, in the mercantile phase, where most of the wealth is being generated by international trade, in the mercantile phase, the thing which manages the mercantile system is the corporation. And that's very important conceptually, because if you think of you know, the government as being the thing that governs agricultural land, the corporation is the thing that governs trade, right? And, you know, the natural form of the transnational corporation is it's a thing which manages the supply chain, which goes through a whole bunch of different jurisdictions. And if one of those jurisdictions becomes hostile to that trade by charging too much of a tariff, it just takes that leg and it moves it into a more friendly jurisdiction. And that's a direct tension between the value chain or the value network as the thing that generates wealth and is regulated by corporations as opposed to land, which is the thing that generates wealth, which is governed by governments. To all intents and purposes, what a government is to a mass of land, a corporation is to supply chain. And then in the industrial setting, the wheels come completely off this model because we never really figure out who's in charge of the factory. You wind up with this head-on fight between the capitalists and the communists where the capitalists say the people that paid for the machines own the factory, and the communists say the people that work in the factory own the factory. But in actual fact, we never really figure out the right way of thinking about factories and industrial production. I think that the closest we got was probably the anarcho-syndicalists in Spain, who suggested that the workers owned the factory, but that each individual factory was owned by the workers who worked in that specific factory, and they owned shares in the factory just like an investor would own shares. So the factories were employee-owned cooperatives, but there was no notion of a Soviet which would own everything in a region which everybody was then beholden to. So I think they hit a really good spot which gave both excellent protection for workers' rights, removed the adversarial relationship between capital and talent as epitomized by the struggles around labor unions, and still had the ability of the capitalist reaper to cause people to go bankrupt when they were incompetent. You know, I, th- I think that we are struggling to this day with the fact that we've never really figured out how to integrate industrial mass production into our political structures. And then all of this stuff multiplies again when the mass production is being done by robots, as you see in data centers. Uh, and just as a little aside there, in 1970, a skilled American machinist working in a factory was making $70 an hour, which is roughly what somebody makes working for Google today. You know, the the actual skilled manual labor jobs of 50 years ago that bought people their, you know, three-bedroom houses with two-car garages, 
you know, that wasn't happening just because things were cheap. It was also that industrial production paid really well because America was the only country that was really good at it. So in terms of the actual policy recommendations, I think that there is very little that democracies can do um, to reshape the landscape in a way that will produce genuine sustainability. I think, unfortunately, the majority of that burden is going to land on China and the politics of, you know, the Chinese bureaucracy being largely run by engineers and scientists versus the American bureaucracy being largely run by lawyers, the Chinese ability to force their population down the path that they consider most long-term stable versus the American tendency to swing to extremes and then average out in the long run. I think people are going to be writing about this period of history for 500 years as being one of the most complex periods that ever, ever happened. Wow. Yeah, it's really complicated out there. You know, like, you know, we really are in a period which is like the Renaissance or, you know, the early days of the Industrial Revolution. Like, if you think in 1945, right, we've got atomic bombs, the moon landing, the invention of the internet, you know, the end of the uh, threat of the atomic bomb as we get in this kind of world peace. Then we go back to religious conflict on an epic scale. The West begins to go bankrupt with the 2008 crash. You know, China begins to return to its normal position of global prominence. You know, this is one of the most action-packed centuries ever. It's absolutely crazy. Did you read The Sovereign Individual? I never did. I, I certainly spent plenty of time talking about the ideas in it. I must have read two or three reviews of it. But weirdly enough, it's one of those books I never got to. I think something you said in a different podcast or, or some people have, have said it is basically you just need sort of, maybe you alluded to previously, this need for global governance. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about, you know, global cooperation. There seems to be a, on one hand sort of, you know, and sovereign individual and others predicted this, you know, you included probably sort of increasing decentralization, which you know implies sort of thousands of city states or, you know, Singapore's, Israel's, you know, Hong Kong's, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, on the other hand, you this need for global cooperation on, you know, things like climate change, things like AI, things like nuclear proliferation, which, you know, implies sort of a greater centralization. So how do you square the circle here? How do you think about that? So uh, the bottom line is that we're doing a really poor job of any kind of international anything right now. Uh, and the main reason is that the UN is completely broken, Right. The idea that tiny little states get the same amount of voting power at the UN as, you know, 1.2 billion person superpowers has left the UN largely ineffective because it doesn't represent the interests of the big guys nearly well enough. So the big guys continue to work around the UN whenever possible and they corrupt the UN processes. At the very least, the UN should have given voting power based on the number of people that you have in your country, at least for some votes. And this is for much the same reason as we have things like the Electoral College, right? You know, it just turns out that having a flag gets you some representation, but having a billion people should get you more representation. And, you know, the UN was established to prevent further global wars. It was built on the ashes of the League of Nations left after World War II, so that model didn't work. And it probably did a pretty reasonable job of providing a vent for international turbulence right the way through the kind of nuclear era when you know the UN was kind of defined by the struggle between capitalism and communism. It was sort of the neutral ground for the capitalists and the communist countries to get together and yell at each other. 
what you would need today if you were going to turn the UN into an effective machine for managing you know, the global issues like nuclear proliferation, like climate change, you would need the will of the people of the world to be represented in the UN, not just the will of their governments. And no less a cryptographer than David Chom, the inventor of digital cash, has a really good proposal for doing that, which essentially comes down to you randomly select a human being on Earth, you phone them, and you ask their opinion. And as long as you can prove that that randomization is good, you need a very, very small sample size to come up with a statistically significant measure. And of course, you then model that individual's opinion relative to the number of people in their area with cell phones, relative to the number of people in their area who would be available at that time of day. You know, you, you try and balance it so that you make sure that the sampling that you've got is representative sampling. And there's always room to improve those statistical models. But you know, if you make, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 phone calls, you could begin to get a rough approximation of a global opinion on something. And if you could get half a million or a million phone calls, you could get very, very good detailed information about global public opinion. And I think that we could easily find a system where you have the United Nations representing the interests of states and then other bodies arising that represents the interests of business and represent the interests of citizens. So we wind up with a kind of tricameral global government, a representation of the states, a representation of the companies, a representation of the individuals. What are your thoughts on, on the charter city movement? And how, how do you see that sort of, like, do you imagine a world in the next you know, 20 to 100 years where there's a thousand Singapores? Um, I'm counting on it. I'm, I'm just flat out counting on it. I mean, I used to believe five, six years ago that the way that we were going to handle the climate refugees is we would basically move them to agricultural land, give them you know, a hexier each, you know, farming tools, seeds, agricultural support, fertilizer, whatever it took, and try and get them restarted in peasant agriculture niches similar to the ones that they had left. Um, my old friend Nathan Corrin, who is uh, CEO of a company called Podaris that does transport planning, Nathan is an urbanist, right? He's he's really super knowledgeable about cities. And he convinced me that I was simply wrong about this, that taking people from one kind of agricultural poverty to another kind of agricultural poverty is totally stupid. And if you're going to have people relocated by climate crisis, you might as well urbanize them at the same time because that's what they want. And you would rather be poor in a city where you've got the chance of improvement, your kids will get an education, than being poor in a village. And I thought about that for several years. And, you know, really, quite bitterly, I accepted that he was right. Because, you know, you want the kind of Gandhian global village to be the long-term answer. You want, you know, small, sustainable communities where people, you know, grow their own vegetables, you get, you know, there is a kind of implicit bias towards that solution that comes if you're Indian because of the legacy of Gandhi. But actually, all of the data that I've got access to suggests that that's basically an Indian anomaly and that for the most part, what really works for people with cities and this is just nostalgia on our part. So how do you make it work for hundreds of millions of climate refugees? You take a patch of land, you make it a special economic zone, you give them a zero tariff export into the G20, and in return, they agree that for every $10,000 of foreign direct investment that comes into that place, they would admit at least one refugee. And in those kind of models, you wind up with cities where they have expedited access to the global market 
as a subsidy for dealing with the fact that they're going to mop up an enormous number of people that have nowhere else to go. And that, that it, to me, is directly the best plan that I can see for handling hundreds of millions of people displaced. And that means, you know, 300 million people displaced is probably the right sort of number. Might be 50 million in some scenarios, might be 300 million in others, might be even worse than that in others. Although at that point, you really run out of capability to cope. But in those kind of scenarios, the idea that you simply spin up new cities and you build, you know, 20 new cities the size of Singapore as a way of basically absorbing that population and that they're all built by essentially the large industrial economies giving these places discounts on tariffs to provide the economic machinery. That's the best plan that I can see with the current political environment for managing the long-term welfare of the expected, you know, sea of climate refugees. And I think you could just about imagine that happening now. I mean, if you took the climate refugee you know, migration into Europe, you could just about imagine someplace like Libya you know, giving a land grant to a special economic zone that was specifically a destination for refugees. And you could just about imagine European companies investing in that area as part of their corporate social responsibility, but also because it's economically efficient, because it gives them a relatively cheap workforce with direct access to the EU without having to go through a tariff barrier. You know, that to me looks like the kind of, you know, messy, nasty, you know, a self-serving political solution that actually gets done in this world. Uh, and I think that's only one of half a dozen global problems that um, charter cities are the right answer to. So how do you think, you know, if in the next decade, I'm assuming you think that, you know, China's sort of going to take over. How do we get from the world in which China is the major superpower to a world where charters, like, what does that interplay? How, how, do, you see, how do you see sort of the global order shaking out? So a world in which China is restored to its normal situation is not the same thing as China being a superpower. Like the superpower model really is just you're an empire with nuclear weapons and a global footprint. And there is no point in Chinese history where they really had any particular interest in running the world. If they had been interested in running the world, if they did the same kind of instincts to go out there and lead you know, the Chinese empire would have covered the entire globe two, three, four thousand years ago. They were vastly more technically advanced than anybody else was in the world. They were way more organized. They were very, very good at fighting wars. But they just didn't have that kind of expansionist gene that made them get into boats and go out there and conquer stuff. But they were, I mean, China was something like, what, 30% of global GDP in 1000 AD? You know, China is used to being you know, one of the most powerful nations on earth. Uh, and it, it shouldn't surprise us that they're kind of returning to that. They had a really rough century, you know, really rough couple of centuries. But, you know, that happens to civilizations, right? If you're an old civilization, there are great centuries. They're kind of rough centuries. They're recovering. But, you know, when China was at the peak of its power relative to the West a thousand years ago, maybe longer, you know, there might be previous peaks, it wasn't that they came over here to dictate terms to us, right? It was that they basically insisted on being left alone and then they got on with their own internal affairs. There was no Chinese program of global colonization. Uh, and that's exactly unlike the European empires. What the Chinese excelled at was mercantilism and trade, and they more or less bankrupted um, you know, 
country after country after country because the locals wanted to buy whatever wonderful things the Chinese were producing and they were willing to pay cold hard cash for them and eventually they just ran out of gold. That led to the opium wars in England, but it wasn't the first time that you know the Chinese skill in manufacturing had caused other economies to go bankrupt. They're just incredibly good at manufacturing uh, and they're really good at trade. I mean, this is, you know, that's what they're good at. And they've got, you know, millennia of optimization in their society for those functions in much the same way that, you know, Indian society is very much optimized around, for example, scholasticism, monasticism, religious practice. That was kind of where India put its cultural weight for centuries, millennia. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that these things are to the exclusions of all the other functions in society, just that there are cultures which excel at different things because that's just how the cookie crumbled historically. So imagine China as a sixth of the world's population and the world's oldest continuing civilization having some opinions about a bunch of cultures which are only really 300 years old trashing the entire planet. You know, it's not unnatural that the world's, you know, oldest continuous government bureaucracy would have something to say about, you know, the kind of your planning to, you know, failure to plan for the future that you're seeing inside of younger cultures. And that's not the same thing as being a superpower. It's just kind of the natural respect which China deserves because they've managed to keep their game together for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's like imagine Greek civilization, you know, if the civilization of the ancient Greeks had never stumbled and it had become the standard way of getting things done across the entirety of Europe and then had expanded into the Americas, that would be kind of about where Chinese civilization is. You know, it's a continuous line of thought, of bureaucracy, of administration, of action, back to cultures that are just as old as the Greeks. So, you know, it's not... it's not that they're going to adopt a superpower model. It's more that they're just going to be kind of like, look, you know, y'all are kind of crazy, uh, you know, like seven or eight year olds and you are playing with matches and you're going to burn the entire house down and best please you would stop. And I think that this is the thing which the Chinese are kind of politely attempting to remind us of. And we're not really listening because we don't like the message, but that sort of thing of like, look, you know, we did one child family because we were running out of the ability to feed our people and we cut right into our family structure in an incredibly deep and personal way at horrific cost so that we didn't run out of food and have a famine. And, you know, that also cut our environmental footprint enormously. It cut the environmental footprint of the human race enormously. We lived within our means. If we're willing to do that, why aren't you willing to compromise on your enormous cars and your enormous houses and your enormous overconsumption. Come now, act like grown-ups. And they can't say that without starting a war, but I think that is roughly where the Chinese are in looking at the climate crisis and the global resource allocation problem. You know, it's like, come on, guys, you know this is not going to work. We know this is not going to work. You're going to have to learn to do things in a completely separate way. Although, have I ever told you what my long-term projection is for how this all plays out? No, this is the perfect time, though. <laughs> uh, t- tell you how I think it goes, right? I think what happens is the Chinese wind up running Earth, and the Americans wind up running the solar system. Now we're talking. Okay, right? how, how does that play out? 
<laughs> well, I mean, you know, the Chinese are really, really, really good at optimizing to live inside of a fixed limit. They didn't go outside of China. They didn't go imperial. They just optimized and optimized and optimized and optimized inside of China um, for maximum quality of life for the people with power across a really long time period. Right? And I'm not saying that was in any way, shape, or form a perfect society. A lot of very, very, very scary things happened in China. Not surprising, given how old it was and how big it was, the bad periods were horrific, just like Europe, just like the Aztecs, just like everywhere. The critical thing is probably the Chinese model is very much more bureaucratized and centralized than, say, the Indian model, right? The Indian model has always been very, very, very decentralized and anarchistic and disorganized. And, you know, like India is not a place that ever had straight lines. And I think that that is part of their resilience, but it's also a large part of their inability to turn the country quickly when stuff needs done. Um, it's a different kind of stability to the Chinese stability. It's much less about long-term forward planning and much more about a very intense kind of localism. Uh, and you can see this again in, you know, if you compare Gandhi to Mao, if Gandhi had lived, you can see, you know, you can imagine how that would have gone. So I think that the old cultures wind up inheriting the earth because the old culture is good at managing fixed resource pools and figuring out how to manage the internal conflicts in their societies in ways which don't tear their cultures to pieces. They've got the skills to live on fixed income. On the other hand, the Americans are frontiers folk, right? Crazy people that got into boats from Ireland, from Scotland, you know, political radicals from uh, the Netherlands, Germany. They all basically dump themselves on the shore and then scrabble like hell to try and get something done there. And obviously the early centuries, you know, the, the first century of American settlement is gruesome, right? We all know those stories. But the the momentum to, you know, succeed and exceed, the further west you go, the fewer people were willing to make the jump. Until you get to California, the Californians that have been there for a few generations, you know, are a completely different gene stock to the people that chose to stay in Scotland, right? Because they were the people that chose to jump and chose to jump and chose to jump and chose to jump. And each one of those things was a genetic and psychological bottleneck. So you've got a population that are super prepared to make the next jump. And it's obvious that the next jump is space. And if we're going to sort out the long-term human resource problems, space-based power it's not very efficient until you're doing a lot of it. Once you're doing a lot of it, it's really efficient. Space-based manufacturing, same thing, right? Once you get scale, you can melt your asteroids that are made entirely of silver or you know, titanium or whatever it is you need. You can find an asteroid made of it, and you've got raw materials and power in unbelievable abundance in an environment where you can move around incredibly heavy things with practically no energy costs. You know, like... Once you get really into space-based manufacturing, the idea of manufacturing in a gravity well will seem like insanity. Like, how could you possibly make anything worthwhile in a gravity well? As soon as you let go of something, it moves away from everything else that you're trying to put it together with. This is craziness. Right? You know, so I think that there is an enormous revolutionary thing coming there. The question is, how long does it take us to get out of the gravity well and get our space game on? Because that's when the Americans go back to being Americans. Americans are terrible at managing the world 
on a fixed resource base. They're made for expansion. They're made for discontinuous change. They're made for frontiers because their entire civilization was built around constant frontier. And America, when it runs out of frontier, turns into a really vicious place. Like, you need the unifying objective of get to Mars, get something done in the solar system, get the asteroid mining going. Like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that the American psyche is super well suited to. It's natural for Americans to go to space in a way that maybe not quite so much for the Indians, maybe not quite so much for the Chinese. Older cultures, less specialization in frontier, less specialization in rapid change, less specialization in expansion. So yeah, that's how I see it. I think I think a century from now, 50 years from now, the old cultures will be largely responsible for managing the biosphere. Some kind of semi-functional, global kind of sort of democracy will probably have emerged, probably multi-party between five or six classes of actors, including people voting on behalf of nature and things like that. Lots of representation of old cultures and indigenous cultures, simply because they're the only people that actually know how to live on the same patch of land for 20,000 years and not foul it all up. 20,000 is an exaggeration, maybe 5,000. But I think the cultural split is that the American psyche is best of all um, basic psychological patterns for going out and doing the solar system thing. And I, I don't really know why Americans are not clear that the only safe place to ever point manifest destiny was at an enormous sterile universe. Like, that's a great place to do manifest destiny. It doesn't work at all in the material world. There are people everywhere. We can't do that here. But space is lifeless and empty, and we ought to just be building boats and going. You know, another way this is presented, Peter Thiel has talked about how you know, crypto is a de- decentralizing force and AI is a centralizing force, and that there's sort of battle there. H- how do you think about that, that framing? So to be honest, I've never believed in decentralization, right? You know, Bitcoin, ooh, decentralization. You know, Ethereum, ooh, decentralization. I've never believed in decentralization. Bitcoin stopped being decentralized as soon as people started mining it on ASICs. Right? As soon as you've got a professional miner class that reaps the majority of the rewards from operating these systems, these things are no longer decentralized in a meaningful way. What they are is they're transparent. Right? So for me, the thing that was always important about the blockchain was transparency, which led to accountability, which led to trust. Right? We could see what was going on, and we could make sure that people kept their promises. Now, once you've got accountability, transparency, and trust, then you can have decentralization because you no longer require central authorities to act as trust brokers. But the network architecture looks decentralized only because we don't really put the miners where they are, which is at the center of the circle, reaping the majority of the rewards. Since the days Bitcoin was a thing that you made rather than a thing that you bought, I've never believed the decentralization narrative was an accurate description of what was happening in reality. What we do have is accountability, transparency, and trust leading to self-government, right? Because we've got the transparency, we can see who the bad actors are, we can write software to punish them, we can write software to block them, to ignore them. You know, the people that are playing by the rules cooperate to run the systems. It does something, but I've never trusted the decentralization framing. Similarly, you know, when people talk about things like, you know, decentralizing electrical infrastructure, It is very true that you can wind up with solar panels on top of everything and you don't have a national grid. Now what you have is a national battery supply chain and a national solar panel supply chain. So, you know, it's not that you wind up with 
you know, this kind of cottage industry guardian style decentralization where everyone is weaving their own cloth. What we really mean is that we've got rule-based systems in which the software is in charge rather than the law. And that's fantastic because software has a whole bunch of transparency that you just don't get with the conventional legal system. And the argument that AI is centralizing, data is centralizing. Have you heard the term economies of omniscience? I've heard the term, but I'm not sure I understand it. So if you know everything about a situation to a very, very fine degree of detail and you've got real-time updates on that, you can make economically optimal decisions because you've got perfect information. And economically optimal decisions with perfect information is what all of the big hedge funds are attempting to offer their investors. We know everything about the world, so we always make the right decision. So we're in a position where we could instrument the world vastly more comprehensively than we already do. We could know so much more about the disposition of physical matter across the planet and the disposition of assets inside of the supply chains and inside of our homes and our lives. And we could take that data set and use it to do massive optimization. That would be the economies of omniscience, parallel to economies of scale, economies of agility, economies of omniscience. Nobody's yet got enough data together to begin to do whole systems optimization of entire supply chains, apart from a few actors like maybe Apple and maybe Walmart. But when that begins to happen, the economies of omniscience is another way of saying that you never make another bad decision. And then you've got to say, you know, how much of the world's resources are wasted by people making bad decisions? How much is profit cut by people making bad decisions based on inadequate data? If you get rid of the data inadequacy so that all the decisions are made on excellent quality data and you can learn from mistakes better because you can see what the inputs were and the outputs were, you get into a world which makes vastly fewer economically suboptimal decisions. We no longer overproduce things and then sell them incredibly large discounts and get them out of the warehouse. We produce exactly what was required, right? We no longer get into a situation where we you know, have things like the 737 Maxes or 747, whatever it was. You know, like the Boeing problem, that was a transparency problem. That was an internal corporate governance problem because the left hand wasn't able to see what the right hand was doing well enough to make sure they didn't screw up the software. You know, all of these kinds of processes, you know, same thing for quality control. Deming, the guy that invented quality control in the current model, his entire thesis is that you have to reduce the fear inside of the company that stops people talking to each other to the point where everybody will tell each other the truth about what went wrong in the manufacturing process that resulted in a defect. And that's how you get everybody working together to make sure that there are zero defects. So I feel like all of these things kind of are like, vanishing points in a painting you know all of the lines converge on if we understand exactly what's happening in the situation we can make the correct decision and that gets us greater economic efficiency it gets us greater environmental efficiency it makes sure that we're not accidentally buying things that have terrible human rights abuses in their supply chain it makes sure that we're not buying things which are environmentally obscene and massively destructive and you know we really can't pull that story together but we have to start making people tell us the truth about what we're buying and selling. Yeah. Can you say more about why price signals are dumb or, or just not comprehensive or what it would look like to have more comprehensive? Sure. I mean, capitalism in its current configuration comes from an age when information was super expensive. If you think of mail order catalogs as they existed pre-internet, 
you would get a book in the post and you would flick through it and you would see something that you wanted and there'd be a little bit of text and there would be a picture and there'd be a price. That was all you would get, right? And you had to make a decision on that basis. Now, if you're doing that, you know, there's a bunch more text available. You might be able to download the manual as a PDF file. You might be able to watch a bunch of videos of people playing with the thing on YouTube. You might be able to go and read a bunch of reviews. You might be able to go to the support forums and see what people are complaining about. And at that point, when you finally come time to make the decision, you're massively well-informed about what you're doing. So in theory, we ought to be allocating capital more efficiently than previous generations did because we've got much better access to information so we can make better decisions based on more data. But it's still really difficult to get absolutely concrete answers to some classes of questions. The example that I usually give here is, will this specific model of television fit into this particular alcove, right? If I have an alcove on a wall and I want to buy a TV that will exactly fit that alcove, it's really hard to be completely sure that the TV will fit because they'll give you a size for the screen, but they won't tell you exactly how big the fairing is. They won't tell you how big the feet are and exactly where the feet are positioned. You can see pictures, but what you really need to figure out whether this TV will fit into that alcove is you need the 3D model of the television provided by the manufacturer. And they have that model because I guarantee that TV existed first as a CAD file, and then they manufactured it from the CAD file. So why can't I have that CAD file, maybe not the full resolution of it, maybe just the outline of the TV, but why can't I have that and then know 100% for sure whether it will fit in the alcove, right? Measure the alcove with LiDAR on my you know, nice new Wizzy smartphone, drop the object into the alcove, will it fit, won't it fit? Those kinds of decisions, like at a personal level, those sorts of inefficiencies are not a huge part of our lives, right? At a personal level, the place where it really gets us is food, clothing, various kinds of consumer goods, compatibility questions. There's a whole bunch of consumer friction because these things don't work properly. The place where that burden really lies is on industry. If you're in the business of doing any kind of manufacturing, it's extremely difficult to get things specified tight enough that when you buy it, it actually works. And you often wind up with companies that have these kind of informal arrangements where if you're going to do anything to the formulation of your paint, even if it's still inside of the same specification, theoretically, you go and talk to all of the people that are your big customers and say, look, here's the new formulation. Try it in your processes. Tell us if it works okay. Because the specification turns out not to actually define the product. So even if you change the product in a way which is still within the formal written specification, you can actually wind up with a disaster downstream. So what I'm suggesting here is that if we had much higher quality specifications for almost everything, we would be able to do vastly more automated decision-making. If we could get enough information about the world published in enough detail, we could begin to use AI to do direct optimization of the physical world and the disposition of our physical assets which on one hand is as Orwellian as hell, but on the other hand, the market is essentially an AI, but it's an AI with enough access to information to make consistently good decisions. You also had this line here, you, that vortex, that infinite regress has distorted the feedback system inside of capitalism to the point where nobody knows what they want anymore in any kind of solid, consistent, clear way. It's created oh. a semantic fog, which has taken away our ability to know ourselves because the human mind was not made to reason clearly when fed 5,000 ads a day. Ah, uh, this is a good one. What we're really talking about here is 
uh, the manufacturing of desire. You know, this kind of post-World War II period, America had the only fully modernized, undamaged manufacturing economy in the world. The factories were fully geared up for wartime production. There had been this enormous transformation of American society. You know, women had left the home, moved into the workplace, and they effectively doubled the size of their workforce. And it was very clear in the American mind that industrial mass production was how the war was won, that and the nuclear bomb. So, you know, there is a period where they have to try and figure out how to re-architect American society and build export markets to soak up the enormous quantity of goods which are being produced. Because at that point in history, workers were able to produce way more than they consume. So you have a kind of tooth-to-tail ratio thing where in the agricultural period, you know, people are maybe making 1% or 2% or 5% more food than they need to stay alive, and that agricultural surplus is turning into things like cities. But you know, it's a really small margin. It grows over time. It's a bit higher if you're outside of places like Iceland. But it's still most people are just working to make food. By the time you get to 1950s-style American mass production, the productivity of a worker relative to their needs, you know, there's a huge gap there. People are super productive relative to their level of consumption. And what happens is they just need to re-architect things so that this glut of goods can be soaked up or the factories become unprofitable because nobody will buy what they're producing. So this starts generating the need to find markets at all costs. Export drives a huge amount of that. But the generation of the internal markets turns into this question of consumerism. How do we persuade people to spend more of their money buying manufactured goods rather than sinking that money into all the different things they could spend money on, like real estate? How do we get them to buy a car rather than a slightly bigger house? How do we get them to buy a car rather than spending another year in education getting a master's degree? How do we get the manufactured goods to go higher up the list of priorities in people's lives such that we can keep them consuming? And I don't know whether you watch the ads that come out at the Super Bowl every year. They're paying you know, millions of dollars to show 100 million people 30 seconds of content. Every single pixel of every single frame has been optimized to get the maximum return on investment for exposing people to that message. But if you look at the adverts, none of those adverts are designed to communicate facts to humans. They're all designed to manipulate people's desires. They're designed to make you want things that you didn't want before you saw the advert. And that's not because the advert tells you, hey, you know, our new thing is 20% faster than our old thing. You should buy our new thing. All of these kind of nebulous dreams and desires and hopes, things which are from the kind of mythopoetic realm, things that come from way back in the deep of our brains, are being repetitively poked to try and get us to you know, display a buying behavior when if we had just been given the thoughts of the situation, the left brain would have filtered it and said, eh, I don't actually need that, and then thrown it away, right? We're essentially consistently attempting to hack people at a kind of biological operating system level to change their behavior in marketplaces. And, you know, it's not that surprising that we're getting a whole bunch of consumer pathologies as a result enormous amounts of credit card debt where people bought a whole bunch of stuff they really didn't need as a way of coping with psychological stress or whatever their problem happens to be. That's happening all the time at a really huge scale because we've spent 
decades after decades after decades, figuring out how to psychologically program people to do things that are not in their best interests, but are in the best interests of advertisers. And we've built practically the entire internet ecosystem on the back of that model. Because if we took all of the targeted advertising, if we took all the advertising period off the internet, what would we be left with? And the answer is the internet as it existed somewhere around 1996, right? I don't think there's any way that if we start actually figuring out what is good for people when they buy something, we're going to discover that people are getting satisfaction from the vast majority of consumer goods, right? Uh, I mentioned these three kitchen appliances, you know, the air fryer, the pressure cooker, and uh, the sous vide machine, right? So the air fryer gets used most days. The pressure cooker gets used any time when a group of people are coming over and I'm feeding them. Uh, And that's a 50-50 toss-up between the pressure cooker and the oven for what gets used. And the sous vide machine gets used for doing large parties because I'll put together a 100-litre tank or a 50-litre tank and, you know, there'll just be food floating around in this thing. And then when it's time to go, we'll just pull it out, throw it in a grill and people are fed. Boom. Fantastic. But in terms of actual consumer satisfaction... You know, those three things all cost about the same amount of money. Sous vide machine, that could easily be something where I'd rented one for a party and then gave it back. If there was a rental market that was efficient for that object, that one sous vide machine could be being used every day by 50 different people, right? Now, if we were going to buy a sous vide machine and we had information that most consumers used it rarely and that information was visible, that's where you begin to think about, okay, maybe this is not a thing that we need to be selling to consumers to sit on their shelves gathering dust. Maybe that's something which ought to be a service rather than a product. It all comes down to having the information to make good decisions inside of market capitalism. And that requires us to get realistic about what the actual final disposition of goods is. What is being used? What is being shelved? What is being landfilled? One th- another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, inequality. And in, mm. in uh, blockchain, it seems that, you know, a very small percentage of people, I think it was like, you know, 4% of Bitcoin holders own like 90% or some, some stat like that. And I think it's not that mm-hmm. much better. Yeah. Another coin. How, how do you think about inequality in a, in a crypto economy? In the real economy, I don't give a monkeys about inequality at all, right? I really just, I don't care about inequality. What I care about is how well the people that are worst off in the society are doing, right? If the people who are worst off in your society are people that can comfortably find a place to live, they have some leisure time, they've got access to reasonable levels of healthcare and their kids are getting educated, you know, there might be one or two other things which are required, you know, but you take a list of basic needs that you're comfortable with. If those basic needs are met, I don't care if the ultra-rich live a thousand years old in immortal robot bodies which are made from, like, lattices of titanium and gold, right? But, I just, but do we care if the poor people care, or the poorer people care? Or are you saying that, hey, like, is it basically that no matter how good it is for poor people, if there are people significantly richer for them, then then they will always, you know, sort of complain and, you know, threaten revolution? Or is it that once they achieve a certain level that they haven't yet achieved, then it'll be fine if there's, you know, many more Jeff Bezos? Uh, so to be honest, I don't know, right? I mean, it may be that there is some kind of you know innate human thing about inequality, and it turns out that the rich are living like this, the poor will object. 
I just, I just, I don't know. But in terms of what will personally get me out of bed in the morning, you know, I've de- devoted the vast majority of my life's effort to trying to figure out how we get the basic material stuff in place for poor people to not die of being poor. You know, I mean, that whole, you know, hex here, critical infrastructure mapping, all the work that I did on water and stoves and all the rest of that stuff, the whole systems architecture in simple critical infrastructure maps, you know, we've still got maybe five or 10 million people a year dying of poverty, right? About one in six to one in three, depending on how you count, of all the deaths that you'll see in the next 12 months will be deaths from poverty, right? People have a, like a 20-year life expectancy gap between rich and poor in America as it currently stands, and that's not because the poor people are doing okay, right? It's really, really messy. But after that level of need is met for everybody in the world, maybe we can start thinking about the next set of problems. Maybe the next problem is that we need to start adding more things to our list of basic needs or something. But any list of basic needs that you could possibly make we are failing hundreds of millions of people with that standard right now, right? Even inside of America, you make a list of basic needs, a frightening number of Americans below that threshold for wherever those basic needs are, right? I mean, I I don't want to pick out the South for this, but I'm going to have to because it's the only example I have to mind. But the things that people find when they go down and do free dental clinics in the South of America are terrifying, right? I mean, you know, you've got kids who, you know, $200 worth of dental care five years ago would have saved them having like a chunk of their jaw removed, right? And that's not happening because things are okay, right? So I kind of feel like I'd like us to get that level of things sorted out like in a really disciplined, coherent, statistical way before we get too exercised about inequality in the abstract, right? Like, look, because it's just not very expensive to cover the basics for people, right? You know, giving, giving people the basic stuff they need to stay alive at a reasonable standard of living is just not very expensive. It's particularly cheap if you think of it in terms of delivering services directly rather than giving them money than expected to buy that stuff in a marketplace. You know, there is a, there is a, a definite sense for me that we need to start thinking really seriously about a basic needs economy, which operates largely separate from the luxury economy. I'm sure people will hate that. And I'm sure a bunch of people will grow to hate the idea that they you know, spent their childhood in a basic needs economy and damn it, they wanted to be in the luxury economy. But I have a very limited degree of tolerance or caring for any of the other causes until we figured out how to make sure that we have a year in which not a single human being dies of starvation. Basic needs economy, are you, is that a metaphor or analogy or, or, or a way of looking at it? Or is that literal, like, some I, change? Well, I mean, you know, what does it take to get everybody on Earth 2,000 calories a day, uh, a pair of spectacles if they need them, and, you know, basic education materials possibly largely delivered using a computer? You know? What does a cheap Android tablet cost these days? $25? So, you know, I, I think that we could take a pretty decent go at making sure that everybody in the world had food and clothing and a basic education for numbers which are so low that you could do it out of like 20% of the money that is wasted in the American defense budget, right? Not just the American defense budget. We could just take 20% of the waste in the American defense budget 
and sort out those services for the entire planet in all probability in the abstract, right? In the particular, once you start spending the money, everybody figures out how to steal it and the process has become corrupted. It's a nightmare. But in, just in terms of the amount of mass in the system, three billion people, $500 a year of subsidy to get them from where they are to where they need to be, maybe it's $1,000 a year, you know, what does that turn into? It's really not a very large number compared to global uh, GDP it, because it turns out the basic stuff of life is really cheap these days, right? I mean, you know, you really can get food for practically nothing if you eat a vegetarian diet. And, you know, there's no requirement that we allow people to starve in a world where, you know, 70 cents a day is enough to feed them. And, and that tier of the economy it's not really clear to me that market capitalism is the optimal way of getting that stuff sorted out because we've had pretty much 50 years of market capitalism in the vast majority of countries that have these kind of problems. And weirdly enough, it hasn't solved those problems. So, you know, it might be worth considering that you might want to start calorie accounting rather than cash accounting to try and understand where the poverty is. You know, here's a phone take a picture of everything that you eat today, right? In a few years, it might be, you know, walk past this terminal and put your hand on it and we'll figure out whether you're malnourished. Can we make an estimate of how much somebody's eaten in the last 24 hours from very, very lightweight biomedical testing? I bet we could if we put our mind to it, right? You know, if you put your hand on the machine and you have not eaten, it feeds you a hamburger. And I'm kind of making a parody of this, but like, you know, at some level, the overwhelming fact of the sheer number of people that die of poverty and starvation, that is the thing that has driven my entire goddamn life, is the immediate realization of how big those numbers are and how totally needless that situation is. You know, m- my own take on the Buckminster Fuller thing is at this fusion point between Buckminster Fuller and Gandhi, which is basically Gandhi's goals with Fuller's technology. If we could figure out how to make the basic life support systems so incredibly cheap that they will get all around the world because it's just cheaper to get that stuff done than not to, then you know I think we could really get a lot of those problems sorted out. You know I know how to build houses for three or four hundred dollars, which will last for centuries, centuries, and you can industrially mass produce them in gigantic. Gigantic quantities. Half of Burning Man's already living in them. Not half, maybe a quarter. Right? You know, the hexyard and the shift pod. Those things are no joke, right? If you start mass producing hexyards out of factory sealed aluminium and cardboard panels, those panels will last for 50 or 100 years with no maintenance. If you make them out of um, all the way aluminium, so the entire panel is an aluminium honeycomb, they'll last for centuries, possibly millennia, without any maintenance. Right, or you could go to polypropylene if you want to go down that track. But the, you know, the bottom line is that there is no reason for anybody in the world not to have a house. Like we can do this incredibly cheaply. We can do it environmentally sustainably. We can do it at gigantic scale, and it could become an X problem because we just manufactured our way out of that problem. And when you actually run the numbers on cost and environmental footprint, it's all there, right? The reason I didn't start a charity and go down that trap 20 years ago when I invented the damn thing was that everything I could see suggested that charities were self-limiting when you start trying to work at scale. The reason I didn't start a company is because the history was filled with patent shelter companies 
where they manufactured 5,000 units a year for five years and then ran out of money. It had never worked, didn't matter how good the technology was. So I made the Hexert an open source project, and I tried to get it to follow the mobile phone track where it started in the luxury markets and then would eventually percolate down into the villages. Uh, and I think it's doing a reasonable job of doing that. ShiftPod is a fantastic project, which basically started with a bunch of people trying to figure out how to make a hexer they could put into a car. And I think it's a lovely piece of engineering. And they're they're selling in the developing world. They've got actual refugees living in them, I believe. So, you know, when we talk about this kind of large-scale poverty, you ever heard of a thing called a biosand filter? Uh, I've not. So it's a bucket with a piece of hose. Right, uh, you put the hose in the bottom of the bucket, uh, kind of running up the side of the bucket and then out, and then in the bucket you've got alternating layers about two inches thick of sand and gravel. And when you want to purify water, you pour it in the top of the bucket, and it gradually soaks down the pile. And then the fresh water in the bottom kind of pushes its way out with a tube and comes out of the top through siphon action, because the the you know the the water well, anyway, you know how siphons work. So after you've been using one of these things for a while you end up with a thick, green, fuzzy layer of pond scum on the top, which greatly increases the filtering efficiency, and it also begins to metabolize out things like any fertilizer runoff or other kinds of contamination. So these things are ridiculously cheap, and they run forever, right? I mean, if you're in an area that's got particular kinds of water problems like arsenic, it won't help you very much. But for the vast majority of water problems that you've got in most places in the world, the biosand filter will sort you right out. And that includes really aggravating and evil stuff like parasitic snails and things like that. Most places, biosand filters will sort you out. Why is that not done everywhere? It's a five-gallon plastic bucket, two feet of hose. You need to make like one hole in the side of the bucket about an inch from the top, and then you need sand and gravel. Problem solved, right? If you want to go down the high-tech route, there's a thing called a straw filter, they're currently sold in American hiking shops for about 20 bucks. Uh, if you were going to mass produce those at a billion dollar quantity, the price would go down to three or four dollars. Problem solved, right? We did this with smallpox. We just vaccinated everybody until the disease went away. You know, the vast majority of the suffering that's caused from poverty is fixable with half a dozen simple machines. It's embarrassing how simple it is. And we just haven't done it because we just, market capitalism is just really poor at selling important things to poor people. It's just not an economic system that's really good at providing really, really cheap stuff to billions of people. Transaction costs are too high. We don't know how to capitalize it. Internationalization is hard. Like At some point, there just has to be a point where you look at it and it's like, look, industrial production could easily solve this problem for the poorest billion or two billion people on earth. Market capitalism has turned out not to be able to organize itself to sort that problem out. It's a market failure. Okay, we're going to have government or something else step in, bridge the market failure. Any human being on earth that does not have access to water that's coming out of a bias hand filter, raise your hand. We're going to get you one by middle of next year at the latest. Try not to die between now and then. Right? I mean, at some level, and maybe this is just the naivety of engineers, but at some level, does it have to be made this difficult? Can we not just solve the problem? Uh, I, I think that's a good note to uh, to, to wrap on. Uh, Gandhi's vision, Buck Minister Fuller's uh, methods. My guest today has been Vinay Gupta. If you're interested in hearing more, uh, definitely read 
the uh, blog post, the Materia Manifesto, Green Capitalism, Product Information Markets, and the Blockchain. Uh, Vinay, anything else you, you want to plug related to Materium or, or otherwise? Uh, we have our lovely starter project with William Shatner. Um, so if you go to William Shatner's uh, Twitter, uh, his pinned tweet is a nice video where he talks about the partnership. It may seem slightly absurd that we're working on Star Trek collectibles at the same time as we're talking about all this global poverty stuff. The bottom line is that to get all of this product information stuff and these things that look like ERP systems that run for the whole life cycle of a product go in, we want to work in areas where the goods are worth more each year rather than less. So appreciating assets rather than depreciating assets because it's just easier to build a business where the things are worth more each year than less each year. And that's where we're going to get started, right? We're going to get started in our collectibles and we're fortunate enough to have Mr. Shatner working with us on this because he's got things that he wants to put on the blockchain. There was one other thing that I wanted to very quickly just note, which is if you've got all of this computing power, think of how much data storage capacity, how much processing capacity we have that we're not currently using. You know, we could build these kind of omniscient systems for managing our material footprint. And that gets us poverty alleviation and it gets us carbon tracking and it gets us anti-slavery and all the rest of these things, right? We could do, we, we've got the computer power to manage the knowledge about all the material things that we own and all the things that they were made from because we've got this vast overbuild of computer power. Everybody's laptop has a spare gigabyte and a couple of percent of processor that could manage ultra-high resolution models of everything they own and all of their supply chain impacts and we wouldn't even notice it, right? And that's before we talk about sticking it in the cloud and making it efficient. So there's there's no excuse for not doing this, right? Silicon Valley has the capacity to build a solution to the environmental crisis. I'm doing my part of that. But, you know, let's start thinking about this as like, we've created a post-scarcity world for information. Now let's do it for at least the basic forms of matter. Vinay, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.